listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2015. Today's episode is titled Coworkers and the Kingdom. Work takes place in one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. Management must be clear that excellent value propositions and enduring success can only occur in the context of the kingdom of light. To be excellent, management must focus on aligning everything in the organization with the kingdom of light. The questions that management must faithfully ask about every aspect of an organization are, is what we are thinking and doing congruent with Christ and his kingdom? And is each individual in the community working synergistically in alignment with the will and ways of God? The only right answer to these questions is yes. Working as a community in alignment with the kingdom of God is the only way to enduring success for every organization. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Coworkers and the Kingdom. This morning we want to continue our, our study of the book of Colossians, and we want to focus in on one verse this morning, and really, really just one concept. Uh, the verse is in chapter 4, verse 11. As we've been going systematically through the book, this is our next, next verse. We, last time we talked about uh, verses 7 through 10 of chapter 4. Now we want to talk about verse 11. And this text reads, These are the only Jews, referring to Jesus, who is called Justice, and uh, referring to John Mark. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they proved a comfort to me. Now let me just put set the context here for you so you can understand something of this this uh, this verse and particularly why he would talk about these Jews who are working with him, their fellow workers for the kingdom of God and what that would mean. You know, many people read that and they say that's really a strange way to put it. I thought we we're about about you know just getting people saved. Well, well, we are about getting people saved, but it's much bigger than just getting saved. So many think the whole uh, game is get people saved and going to heaven, and that's it. And that's not what Scripture teaches, and which is a big part of the SLA message. We're trying to get people to recognize that coming to Christ is the entrance into a process where you're growing and maturing in Christ and discovering the purpose for which God created you and now fulfilling that purpose. And in fact, that I think is indeed what we see in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, when Paul talks about salvation so clearly in verses 8 and 9, and then in verse 10, he tells you why you're saved. You're saved specifically to do the work assignment God has called you to play in his meta narrative. So when you realize that, you say, wow, this is bigger than just me going to heaven. It's bigger than just me accepting Christ and being baptized and being part of a church. It is much bigger. And so that's why Paul uses this terminology. So first we want to set a context here for this particular comment in the overall plan and purpose of God. And, and we want to talk about specifically the context in this book of Colossians. So first in the overall plan and purpose of God, keep in mind that when God created us, human beings, he gave us the charge to rule. Rule is about exercising authority of, of choice. Authority has to do with freedom of choice. So whoever is in authority has the, the choice to make. They can choose what to do, what not to do. 
when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in Matthew 28, right before he gave us what is normally called the Great Commission, which I would say is a misnomer, but when he gave us that charge to make disciples, he started out by saying, all authority has been given to me, meaning the power of choice has been given to me, and this is what you do. And he gives us then the mandate to go make disciples. Well, why should we make disciples? What's the point? If coming to Christ is all we need to do so we have a ticket to heaven, why do we need to become disciples? Well, you become disciples because he's got a work assignment for you, and you can never do that well unless you're trained. A disciple is a trained worker who is able now to do what God has created them to do. We are here, according to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, to work. The work we're called to do is to rule God's creation by multiplying and mastering it. Now, some people call that dominion. So you, if you call it dominion, it's two aspects of dominion. We have to multiply over the surface of the earth, which we are doing, and then we have to master it. And the purpose of all this is to reflect the rulership of God on this creation. So of all species that, man is, that God has made, man uniquely has the ability, by virtue of being created in the image of God, to reflect God at the highest level. And so there's no other species that can reflect God at the level that man can. And so we're here to do that. Once man fell, then a new program was initiated. And that program was the program of now dealing with sin and death. And, and God chose to do that through a long process. And the first part of that process was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is all about revealing to man that no matter what conditions man is given, man can never do enough good things, good works, to be acceptable with God. Now, God knew that, but man did not know that. So two-thirds of the Bible is there to explain to us at least one of the themes of this explanation is <clears throat> that man cannot make himself acceptable with God. Even though in Genesis 3, when you see the fig leaf story, you see right there that God is telling man, you can never make the fig leaves that are good enough. Okay, you can never be acceptable with me no matter what you do. You know, the rest of the Old Testament basically is echoing that theme, that same point. You can never be good enough to be acceptable with me. I'll even give you a law, and if you obey the law perfectly, you'd be acceptable, and you, you can't do it because your flesh is so depraved. It's so fallen because of rebellion. And so that sets the stage for Christ. So the New Testament is the, now the revelation of Christ, which to some degree was a mystery to the Old Testament uh, believers, and even to the people that lived at the time of Christ, it was a mystery. They did not understand the Old Testament thoroughly enough to see Christ accurately enough, and so they were surprised. And Paul even talks about this mystery of how God is working. And so Christ comes, and he comes with a gospel of the kingdom. In fact, the introduction to Christ was John the Baptist, and his gospel was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus begins to preach his gospel, it's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And throughout the gospels, you have this massive record about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, over and over again, there's references to this. I remember when I was a fairly young Christian and reading the Bible through, 
with a whole new level of eagerness to understand it, and I kept running into the phrase, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is only found in the book of Matthew. It's not, it's not the only way that Matthew refers to the kingdom, but it's a, a very common way. Matthew also uses the phrase kingdom of God, but it uses the word phrase kingdom of heaven a lot more. And scholars believe that uh, it really is a reference to the same thing. There's no difference. In fact, there's one text that seems to clearly indicate that the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are identical. It's just two ways of saying it. This is Matthew 19, verses 23 through 24, where Jesus said to his disciples, Surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he repeats what he said, but now he's going to use the kingdom of God. The next verse says, and again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So there he says the same thing twice, but he uses kingdom of heaven in the first phrase, kingdom of God in the second. So the scholars say, okay, that appears to be an indication that Jesus viewed those reference to the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God as being identical references. Now, obviously, there's some scholars that will try to disagree with that and try to make another case, but I think it's, this is a pretty compelling verse here that certainly suggests the equality of it. So you have throughout the gospel records, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, many, many times. In fact, uh, perhaps something like 90 times you will find these references. And so you're saying, what is this? And I remember going to uh, one of my spiritual fathers back some 40 years ago and saying to him, what are all these references to the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God? What's this all about? And sadly, he didn't really have much understanding of this himself. So what he referred me to was Revelation 20, which talks about the millennial kingdom. Now, certainly the millennial kingdom um, is an interesting topic, and there's some level of reality to it, which we don't fully know if it's literal or figurative or both. It's, it's hard to know, hard to be certain. We don't have a lot of information on that. So there are good scholars, good men on both sides of the camp. Some think it's literal. Some thinks it, think it's metaphorical. So I, I looked at that, and I thought about that, and I just felt like, wow, there's so many references here to the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God just in the Gospels. Plus, there's a bunch of references in the Old Testament to it as well, and there are references after the Gospels to it as well massive references to this kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. So I realized there was something far deeper here to this than I was able to see at that time. One of the things that really blessed me by Dennis Peacock coming into my life was that he is the first person that I had ever encountered, and I have, I have known a lot of very capable scholarly theologians by virtue of the church I was in being very closely connected to Dallas Theological Seminary, and a lot of the professors actually being part of our congregation and teaching a lot of classes there. And just to give you an example, I mean, I, w I was taught theology there. I was taught worldview there. I was taught uh, homiletics, hermeneutics there. Uh, you know, just a wide variety of really scholarly courses that were offered at our, ch our church. And so we got a real depth of teaching there, but I did not find anyone that really could explain the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. And then I ran into Dennis. And Dennis began to explain the kingdom to me in different ways. It helped me to see some of the, the text in different light. 
And so for that, I'm deeply grateful to him. But now I see the kingdom in a whole different way. I realize that the kingdom has many dimensions to it. There is an internal dimension that Paul talks about in Romans 14, where it talks about the kingdom of God is in you. It's internal. It's peace and joy in the spirit. It isn't so much external, although it is external, but it's very much internal as well. Also, you know, I would read about the kingdom as, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it's here. It's present among you. There apparently was a, a, a time aspect to it, a geographical aspect to it, where it began to manifest when Christ came. So there's an entrance, kind of a new level of the kingdom that came. In the Old Testament, the representation of the kingdom was largely the nation of Israel. But now in the New Testament, Christ becomes the representative of the kingdom. And yet with Christ, we know there's the fullness of that representation won't come until he comes again. So there's even a future aspect of it that will be fulfilled at that time. And we know when he comes, he will come to judge and deal with sin and death finally and establish his kingdom totally, completely, fully. So we see this unfolding of the kingdom in Scripture, and we see that the whole Scripture is knit together by, the, by this idea of the kingdom. And so now when the gospel message is presented, Jesus presents a message of the kingdom. In fact, it talks about he preached the gospel of the kingdom. And say, wow, this is really very interesting. Most of us, when we talk about preaching or proclaiming the truth about Christ, we don't use that phrase proclaiming or preaching the gospel of the kingdom, but yet you will find that Christ used it, and you'll find that the Apostle Paul used the idea. And here's just one reference here. You can, there are many other references. For example, at the end of Acts, when Paul is in prison in Rome, it very clearly states there in two different places in that last chapter of the book of Acts that he was about teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. And so now here in Colossians 4, verse 11, he again makes this very clear that he is a he's working and he has co-workers for the kingdom of God. It's about the rule and reign of Christ. Now, if you've uh, read any books uh, like uh, George Ellen Ladd's book on the kingdom of God, you've you've probably had some exposure to some scholarly thinking about it. And uh, arguably, George Ellen Ladd is one of the first in the last hundred years or so and one of the only ones that's really spent really a lot of time looking at this in depth and trying to come up with some real deep understanding. And his understanding of the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is about the authority of God to rule. Now, that's a very interesting way to put it. It isn't so much about the realm, you know, the dominion of his rule, the, the geographical boundaries of it or the time boundaries of it. Those are aspects of it, but it's really about his authority to rule. He has the sovereign authority to rule, and right now he is allowing rebellion to take place in his universe, but that rebellion will end, and he will be fully established. There will be no rebellion once Christ comes and deals with sin and death forever. But in the meantime, we have a battle going on, and so we are here to engage with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in, in participating in the work of the kingdom of God. Now, what is the work of the kingdom of God? Well, I think Paul in this book of Colossians gives us a big clue. So here's where the context of Colossians is important. 
as you start looking at this book, you realize chapter one is all about helping us understand the theology of Christ as the creator, sustainer, and ultimate end of the universe, and how we relate to him and how he's brought us into a saving faith in himself. And we were sinners living and rebelling against God. Now he saved us from the penalty of sin and death and brought us into relationship with him. Chapter 2 now begins to go into, well, how do we live in light of being brought into that relationship with Christ? Well, we have to be rooted and grounded in Christ. And that's what he's all about. See, this is the work of the kingdom of God, getting people rooted and grounded in Christ. And part of the implication of that is made clear at the end of chapter 1 when he talks about uh, the role that he's playing is he's putting all of his energies into helping people come to Christ and then helping people find the purpose of Christ for their lives. In other words, find the destiny of God and do it. That is the work of the kingdom. And so when you engage in finding the purpose of God for your life and finding its full expression in every sphere, including the work sphere, now you're moving into the kingdom of God. You're moving into where God is ruling and reigning in your heart, and in as you go out as his emissary, you are bringing that rule and reign to others. And as you exercise your authority where you've been granted authority, where you have the power of choice, then you have the power to bring the kingdom into that sphere and to work to help others then get on the same track that you're on. And that all is rooted in being rooted and grounded in Christ and growing and maturing in Christ and discovering the purpose of God and walking in that purpose. So chapters 1 and 2 are laying that foundation. This is what the work of the kingdom is. Chapter 3 gives us more specifically the, the character we've got to build to release the purpose of God in us. This is a big part of the kingdom is internally transforming us. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repentance is changing of the way you think. You have to change the way you think before you can change the way you live. And so it's transformation of the mind and the heart. So now we live differently. And in chapter 3, he lays out the value system we need to embrace and the power that we have to have by the Spirit to be able to walk in that. Also in chapter 3, he gives us that seminal principle of how to live life, not only in the family, personally, but in the workplace, how we live. And that seminal principle is whatever you do, you do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you speak, you do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, the seminal principle of Christianity. Then the end of chapter 4, he gives us, he applies that, applies that seminal principle to the, work, to the workplace and to the family. And then he rolls into chapter five or 4 here, and he talks about the importance of the seminal principle in being a manager, a leader, how you lead in a way that honors God, that brings the kingdom into it to bear into how you lead organizations. And then he rolled into prayer how you've got to be devoted to prayer. And why is that? Because you're going to have lots of resistance. The enemy is going to oppose you at every front because you're trying to walk out the will and ways of God. That is the kingdom of God. And if you can't do that well, the enemy will derail you and block you. 
And then he rolled into the last part of chapter 4 where he's talking about the community and making it so clear that we have to work together and live together in community. And chapter 4, verse 11 is another addition to that theme because here he's talking about two Jews. Remember, Paul is a Jew. He's ethnically a Jew. And he's got two brothers here. He's got John Mark, who at one time Paul had a real falling out with, but obviously they have made amends, and they're able to uh, to really work together now. And he considers him, obviously, a very dear brother now. So it shows you the value of reconciliation and restoration. And then Jesus, this which, which refers, or the name is Justice also, which means just. Maybe that's something about what he did. He was a very just man. But these two Jews were the, are fellow workers for the kingdom of God. They're helping him make disciples and helping those disciples find the purpose of God for their lives. That's the work they're engaged with. And this is a great comfort to him. Now, why would that be a comfort to him? What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is, you know, whenever you are in a battle, whenever you're fighting a war, you know, there's a saying that says misery loves company. Well, it can be very challenging, very taxing, very difficult. Paul is in prison, in chains, and in the Roman Empire, they did not take care of you. You're just there. Your friends had to come and take care of you, or you weren't cared for at all. They didn't care whether you lived or died. They didn't care about your rights. There, You had no rights. You were just locked up. You may have been granted the freedom to be under house arrest. That may be granted to you, but they're not going to care for you. So... There's a physical side of this that needs to be handled, but there's also a spiritual dimension because he's getting all this opposition, and he's there to be tried, and he probably ultimately knows he's going to die. He's toward the end of his life here, but he finds great comfort in these two men. And this word for comfort is an interesting word here. It's a compound word in the Greek language, para, which means beside. We get parallel from that. And agora, which means to assemble. Okay, so the idea is, is something like uh, solace or relief through companionship. Relief through companionship. I'm struggling. I'm in a difficult circumstance. It's very hard. Please know that Paul is not praying for deliverance from the circumstance. No, he's praying for the grace to press through it and do the work God's assigned him in the midst of the circumstance, and he greatly appreciates the fellowship the community of believers, and helping him walk through that. Now, sadly, today, what I see so frequently in the Christian community is when people get in tough circumstances, instead of pressing into community, they withdraw. That's our practice. Now, I think part of that is because we have a stigma in the Christian community, at least as I've seen this, I've experienced this. I'm not saying that every Christian community does this, but in the Christian communities I've been around, I've been in a denominational stream, a Bible church stream, and a charismatic stream, all three streams I saw the same thing, and that is it was not acceptable to have problems. If you had problems, then you just, um, you just keep it to yourself. Now, in the charismatic stream, they are more engaging about it, but there's still a bit of a stigma. Associated. If you've got problems, you're kind of deficient, you're defective, you're really not, you're not, not with it. You can't be in the in crowd and have problems. You can't be in leadership and have problems. So we, we don't have a mentality 
of embracing difficult circumstances as from the Lord and knowing he's working through them and embracing his provision to be able to endure those circumstances. And one of his key provisions for enduring difficult circumstances is community. You know, so you need to find, learn how to find comfort in godly people who can come alongside you and, and work with you in the midst of the challenging circumstance and find comfort and relief through that. Now, I want to just kind of use my wife as a little example of this real quickly. Um, she is, you know, a, a, an administrator of a Christian private school, and she came up to that position by being a teacher for many, many years and being an outstanding teacher, being regarded as a master teacher, which is, you know, obviously one of the highest levels of teachers that you can get to is be a master teacher. And that's an informal designation. It's not a formal designation, but she was recognized by all. So when she moved into administration, her work changed. She didn't have a classroom anymore. Now she's working with parents and teachers and students at a different way. And she's found that work a bit more challenging and not as much fun. So the circumstances were a bit different. And there have been many times when she just wanted to quit. And I have said to her, you can't quit. God has got you in this particular circumstance to hone you, to perfect you, to refine you, to mature you, and to grow you up. That's what he's after. You cannot jump out. You have got to stay in it. So I've, I've been the one that kind of holding her feet to the fire through all this. And there have been times when she's really expressed appreciation and gratitude for that, and other times she's not very happy. So we go back and forth. But... I'm seeing increasingly over time she is realizing what God is doing through this and embracing it more and more. And now just this morning she commented how I am increasingly having divine appointments. God is sending people to me and giving me favor to give them wisdom, and they're listening and responding, and I'm seeing people changed. So there you are. He had to prepare you and mature you to where you, he could do this through you. And that's how he works. And so hopefully I've been a companion with you to, to give you some relief by being with you, but I'm not trying to get you out of it. I'm trying to help you grow through it. And so I, I've got to believe that John Mark and Justice were there as companions with Paul, not for relief, but for perseverance, to see the real fruit of transformation and change happen, not only in Paul, but in the people Paul is ministering and serving to. So here's this is the work of the kingdom of God, bringing the rule and reign of God into your life, and now you influencing the people you have been called to influence and people you have authority over to bring the rule and reign into them and help them grow and mature in the destiny and purpose of God for their lives. So that, I think, is what Paul is talking about here, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we recognize we are handling the gospel of the kingdom, and the gospel of the kingdom is relevant to everything in life, and it will be a battle because the enemy is opposing the gospel of the kingdom. In chapter 1, Paul said, we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of light is the kingdom of God. So we have been put into a new kingdom by virtue of Christ, and now living in that kingdom it, at this time is going to be a battle until Christ comes and the finality of the judgment on sin and death are realized, and then we enter into a new phase 
of the kingdom at that time, the fullness of the kingdom. Right now, we see in part, we know in part, and our part is to do what God's called us to do in the kingdom according to his will and his ways and do it for his glory. May we do that well in Jesus' name. Amen.